0: Good day everyone. You are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host Rick Cole and each week we embark on a journey back in time 50 years right now to the year 1970 and we report and examine on the news and the issues that were affecting the sporting world, the hockey world back at that time and issues that actually led to and affected sports even up to the present day. This time around, we have all the big news from the week of February 23rd to March 1st, 1970, and it was a pretty busy week. Now this podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and they've been instrumental in allowing us to access the newspapers from the 1960s and 70s and that's where we get most of our research from. We are also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in Port Colborne, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall are purveyors of outstanding craft beers many of which are from recipes crafted by the town's First brewery in the late 1800s they also served the best pub fruit around with delicious gourmet burger and pizza specials each week created by that amazing team in their kitchen if you're in the niagara area get hold of me and we'll have a beer at the break wall in last week's show some of the stories we talked about were wayne mackey's testimony at his trial in ottawa for that high stick swinging duel with ted green last september We found out that Buffalo's National Hockey League team finally got a name. They were called the Sabres, and we talked about a couple of big NHL trades. Now, this time around, we'll have more news on the impending National Hockey League trade deadline, Uh, more surprising names being thrown around, and there were two more significant trades completed in this week. We will learn that the uh, Vancouver Canucks finally make an appointment, uh, of their general manager, which was at that time the worst-kept secret in hockey, Bud Poyle, as everyone kind of figured, got the job, but not without some controversy. And we'll discuss some NHL attendant figures from this season, and at first look, it's a little surprising. Another very, very busy, new newsy week 50 years ago in the hockey world, and we're going to talk about it all right now. Last week, if you were around with us, uh, you remember we talked about a couple of big National Hockey League trades made by the Los Angeles Kings. In those deals, they basically gave up six players and got another six back. While it was a huge shakeup. For the wildly inefficient Los Angeles franchise, at least this season, they are the worst team in the National Hockey League. To most of us, these two trays didn't look like they were working on being better. It looked more like a simple shuffling of the deck chairs on the Titanic. This team is going down and going down fast, and the prospects for improvement, at least at this point, were not great. The deals did, however, grab the attention of hockey fans and commentators. There was lots to talk about, and the fans in LA at least got the impression that general manager Larry Regan was trying to do something to make the club a little better. Now, this got me thinking about my own preoccupation with trades, and I guess I'd call it that, a preoccupation. In both baseball and hockey, uh, trades have always kind of held my interest really strongly, and I started to thinking about, why is that? I don't know why hockey trades, uh, are so appealing to me, uh, so fascinating. I know most sports fans really like to discuss trades. They like the, uh, Walter Mitty complex of if I were the GM, if I were the president of a company, I'd do this. And maybe that's part of it. Now, the first hockey trade I can ever remember actually paying attention to was way back in November nineteen sixty. I was nine years old. I saw a story in the Hamilton Spectator. Uh that was in my household, the main daily newspaper along with the Welland Tribune, where I lived out in Lowbanks uh, we had a gas station and a general store, and that was it. Nearby Dunville only had the weekly Dunville Chronicle. No sports or national news was uh, carried there. The story that I'm talking about noted that the Montreal Canadiens had traded forward André Pronovo to the Bruins for another forward, Jean-Guy Gendron. It's funny, but I remember that I had the André Pronovo Parkhurst hockey card that year. And I got it out, looked at Andre and started wondering what he might look like in a Boston uniform. Of course, every other trade that came along had me wondering the same thing. I had all my hockey cards and I started wondering what guys would look like in the new garb. In fact, over the next few years, I ruined a lot of my doubles hockey cards with my dad's exacto knife and a tube of glue. And you know what we tried to do. We would swap out the players on their jerseys. And of course, when you had a full length shot of one player and the guy he was traded for is just a headshot, that really, really upset me. I began tracking every time a player moved from one team to another. From that day, pretty much right up to the present. Strangely enough, it was really weird why this trade got my attention. Just 20 days before that deal, the Toronto Maple Leafs had sent a couple of journeyman players named Johnny Wilson, who coincidentally was a coach at the LA Kings in 1970, and Pat Hannigan, soon to be a broadcaster with the new Buffalo NHL team, to the New York Rangers for Eddie the Entertainer's shack. For some reason, though, I don't remember hearing about that deal right away. It didn't grab this nine-year-old's attention. Now, just a little two months later, I'm now a little bit excited about trades. The Red Wings and the Bruins hooked up in a swap that saw Gary Aldcorn, Murray Oliver, and Tommy McCarthy go to the Bruins for Vic Stasiuk and Leo Labine. And of course, Vic Stasiuk in 1970 was very prominent as a coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. A few days after that one, the Maple Leafs traded Eddie Chadwick, to the Boston Bruins for our nearby Port Colborne native Don Simmons, and that really got me hooked on hockey trades. I didn't know at nine years old, actually 10 by the time Chadwick was traded, that I would become best friends with Ed, and we'd have a lot of talks about his trade from Toronto to Boston and the rest of his hockey career. And we will have some uh, interviews with Ed, Uh, coming along very shortly. After that deal, I began tracking every single player movement and I kept all the players' names on cards for years and years. And with the advent of computers, they all went into a database. Of course, when you're talking about trades, you got to talk about the inevitable rumors that come about among fans and members of the fourth estate, the establishment, the press. We didn't get a lot of trade rumors in the Spectator, mainly because it was a Hamilton paper close to Toronto, but none of those guys really attended the uh, Maple Leaf games on a regular basis and heard all the scuttlebutt that was uh, buzzing around the press box at Maple Leaf Gardens. But we did have the uh, Welland Tribune, and Wayne Redshaw was the sports editor of the Welland Tribune, and he had a lot of friends around the country. He would later become very prominent, when uh, the Sabres uh, began playing in the NHL. But even before that, he would report on trade rumors that he heard. So we heard a lot of those. And of course, the rumors always intrigued me as well. It wasn't like uh, today where guys have a whole cottage industry around uh, marketing and trade rumors, most of them made up during drug-induced or alcohol-induced comas. But in those days, they were fun to talk about. On this week 50 years ago, there were a couple of deals leading up to the trading deadline again. You got to remember in 1970, the trade deadline wasn't the media circus it is today. We didn't have uh, 8 to 10 hours of TV coverage with uh, 8 or 10 guys in different parts of the set talking about, you know, a career minor leaguers suddenly getting a chance with a team as a throw-in in a, in a big six-player trade. Nothing like that at all. When we found out about a trade, usually it was mentioned either early or later in the story most of the time, oh yeah, this happens to be the day that the, the NHL set after which you can't make any more trades. That vaunted phrase of today, the trade deadline, didn't really even exist as a term back then. Now, the first of this week's two deals was a pretty interesting one. The North Stars acquired goalie Gump Worsley from the Montreal Canadiens. Right away, people began complaining about this deal because the announcement of the trade says Gump Worsley's going to the North Stars and we don't know what's going to Canadians. They didn't use that term future considerations. They did say in one story, other considerations. And they said the return for which is to be ter- determined at the end of the season. Ren Blair of the North Stars insisted he did not trade a draft choice for Gump Worsley, nor did he surrender any of his young players. But there was no hint of exactly what, other than maybe a case of bourbon, would be going back to the Molson family in exchange for Gump. Gump, as you remember, had retired, or at least said he retired, early in the season when he was sent to the American Hockey League by Montreal, but refused to report. The Canadians had given the North Stars permission to talk to Worsley. He agreed to a contract for the rest of the season with the team, and the transaction was arranged. A day after that transaction, the L.A. Kings were at it again. This time, they traded left-winger Teddy Irvin to the New York Rangers uh, for a young... European center by the name of Yuha Whiting, who played his junior hockey in Western Canada and was beginning to make a, a name for himself as a regular NHL player. Also moving to the Kings from the Rangers was winger Real Lemieux. Now, he'd previously played for the Kings. He was kind of a truculent guy who uh good in the corners. Good in the dressing room, uh, real heavy French-Canadian accent and often funny to listen to. But he's the type of guy that maybe could light a fire under the moribund Los Angeles team. Irvin was the type of man that uh, the the Rangers needed. They were often mentioned as being soft and easy to play against. And Ted Irvin, Irvin was anything but easy easy to play against. He was good in the corners, would take no guff from anyone, and he had good hands, nice touch around the net. A lot of people describe Ted Irvin as the quintessential honest hockey player. Now, if the name Ted Irvin is uh, familiar to you here in the 21st century, it's because Ted is the father of professional wrestler Chris Jericho. So with that deadline now, coming to be just a little more than a week away on March 7th. Would any other familiar players be moved in trades? Tune in next week to find out. But for now, we're not going to tell you who goes or who doesn't go. We do have some rumors that may give us a clue as to what was about to happen back then. In Toronto, the Maple Leafs are wallowing at the bottom of the Eastern Division standings and if you know the Toronto press, it was almost just as bad back in 1970. The press was a daily nuisance uh, to the club. At least that's how management considered them. But if you know Toronto media, you know what I'm talking about. At this point in time, the Leafs had been uh, decimated with injuries, mostly on their blue line. And they were able to get, they were about to get a couple of young rear guards back in the lineup, namely Jim Dory. And Mike Pelleck. Toronto had apparently already rejected a deal, although to hear the Blackhawks say they were the ones that turned it down, or the Kings, I'm sorry, uh, turned it down, a deal that would have sent Dory and goalie Bruce Gamble and others to the Los Angeles Kings and Bill White, goalie Jerry Desjardins and others would have moved to Toronto. But the Whisters that the defenseman, uh, would be traded wouldn't go away. That deal that probably would have helped the Leafs a lot, especially Desjardins. Those deals just wouldn't go away. Now, there were reports this week that the Maple Leafs had a deal all but agreed to with the St. Louis Blues, and that would have seen the great Tim Horton go to St. Louis for St. Louis' first-round pick in the 1971 amateur draft. However, the Blues general manager coach Scotty Bowman, a shrewd operator, pulled back from that bartering session at the last minute. He decided he didn't want to be giving up any of his draft picks like his expansion cohorts had been engaged in, so nothing happened on that front. Another story had General Manager Jim Gregory talking with the Rangers GM email Francis about a deal involving Tim Horton, but Francis told reporters in New York, that he had several young rearguards who needed to get trials before he would bring in a veteran. Emil was worried about the expansion draft this June, and he didn't want to lose a couple of good young defensemen. Uh, Mike Robitaille was one he was especially excited about. He didn't want to lose those in an expansion draft to the incoming Canucks and Sabres. Another team that the Maple Leafs were rumored to be speaking to was the Philadelphia Flyers. Marcel Peltier was their top scout and director of player personnel at the time. And over the past week, he was seen at several Maple Leaf games. And with all the uh, issues with the Maple Leafs and Mike Walton and the Flyers desperate for any kind of scoring help, it was a natural assumption that Walton could be sent to the Flyers. There was talk that the Maple Leafs and Flyers had a deal in place that would send Ed Van Imp to the Maple Leafs in exchange for Walton up, but Jim Gregory insisted that he needed a goaltender and wanted Doug Favell included in the trade as well. Flyers General Manager Keith Allen said that he wasn't going to trade Favelle, and then when Doug uh, severed his Achilles tendon, that deal went by the wayside. Now, the Minnesota North Stars, uh, desperate to try and make the playoffs, were down near the bottom, but now it seemed to start to come out and then went in a more than 20-game winless uh streak, or sorry, one win in 20 games anyway. Uh, they were seen poking around Maple Leaf Gardens. Ren Blair, who is from the GTA anyway, the greater Toronto area, uh was in Toronto and did have some con- conversations with uh, Leafs' Jim Gregory. The Leafs' targets in any trade discussion was young left winger Danny Grant, but Blair was very reticent to give up a quality scorer for the type of young defenseman the Leafs were said to be offering. There was also talk out of Chicago that Gregory was working hard to bring in Dennis Hull, younger brother of Bobby, to Toronto, but what Jim had offered the Hawks for Dennis had left the Hawks lukewarm to the idea of such a transaction. But Dan Proudfoot, brother of Jim of the Toronto Star. Dan writes for the Toronto Globe and Mail. He went so far as to say that the younger of the Hall brothers would likely be in Toronto before the NHL's deadline for trading had passed. Proudfoot said that a source close to Chicago management indicated that after the big trade with the Kings, Dennis was the one player on the team that the Hawks were actively considering trading away. Proudfoot's report said that although Toronto doesn't have a wealth of assets that could be moved for uh, some scoring help, players such as Paul Henderson, Murray Oliver, Floyd Smith, Mike Pellick, Jim Dory, and Jim McKinney could be part of a package transaction that would give up some uh, or would bring into Toronto some people who could put the puck in the net in a regular basis now Mike Walton of course of the Maple Leafs is a guy who can do that put the puck in the net uh, on a regular basis but he is such a headache to Maple Leaf management that he's not really considered a huge asset at this time and it's unlikely they'd be able to make a good deal with anybody until Mike seems to straighten up his act. So behind all the trade talk, there was a lot of other news this week. And here are some of the items that were making news and gathering uh, our attention. The New York Rangers physician, Dr. Kazuyana Gosawa, passed away at the beginning of the week. Now, a lot of people won't know or remember that name, but he was a very, very important person in the hockey world at that time. Dr. Yanagasawa was not only the Rangers' team physician, but he was very famous for his work with spinal fusions. And he is credited with saving the careers of Roger Baer, Jean Rattel, and Orlan Curtinback, all of whom had surgery while members of the New York Rangers. There was some injury news this week. A few players went down with uh, various ailments. The Flyers lost defenseman Joe Watson, who's had a rough time uh, since about Christmas. just recently had a broken nose. Now he's out for the next three to four weeks with a busted foot. That's going to hurt the playoff drive for the Flyers for sure. The Red Wings lost goalie Roger Crozier for the next week to 10 days with a sprained right Ankle now, team doctors said they were going to place the ankle in a cast for a week, hoping that completely immobilizing the ankle will speed the healing process. Now, this would normally be devastating news for a team like the Red Wings who are embroiled in a tight playoff race, but Crozier's net minding partner. Roy Edwards he's having a great season he's just about the most valuable player on that team aside from the great Gordy Howe and he'll just take on a little bit larger workload and that's something Roy Edwards is entirely capable of handling. The New York Rangers got more injury bad news this week as well. After losing Brad Park with a broken ankle and Jim Nielsen with knee injuries, the very valuable left winger Donnie Marshall went down with a dislocated shoulder. Don was injured in a game against the St. Louis Blues this week. He was hurt on a play where he was a guy checking the Blues right winger Gary Sabrin into the boards. Somehow, Donnie fell up. Very awkwardly into Sabrin, the two went down and somehow uh, Don's shoulder was damaged when he fell to the ice again in a very awkward manner. No malice on that play, no intent by anybody, just a hockey play that uh, had an unfortunate uh, ending. Leafs still having trouble with the goaltenders. Johnny Bauer, still unable to play with that bad knee, has been given a temporary scouting assignment by the team, and that could be a clue to what's going to happen to Johnny in the near future. Johnny's off to Minnesota this week, and he's going to find out by scouting University of Minnesota goalie Murray McLaughlin. They want to find out if Murray is uh, a worthwhile NHL prospect. The Leafs might offer that young guy, uh, a trial with the team, maybe even by before the end of this year. The other Leafs backup goalie, Marv Edwards, uh, his injured knee that had surgery, doctors told him the operation was a complete success, but he is still having pain and not quite up to par. Still with the Leafs, uh, right winger Floyd Smith has been out for a couple weeks due to injury. He may not get back this year, and it's virtually assured Floyd Smith won't be with the Maple Leafs next season. I'd look for uh, Count Floyd to wind up with his old pal, Punch Imlach, in Buffalo next year. Now, you know, we talked about Doug Harvey uh, making a comeback with the Los Angeles Kings. Uh, Stan Fischler was one of many that reported that fact, but it never did come off. And we never did get an official reason why. Jim Proudfoot of the Toronto Star confirmed what many thought was the case when he reported this week that the LA Kings general manager Larry Regan had, in fact, asked Doug Harvey to play on the Kings defense. Doug refused the request. He told Regan that he didn't feel that at age 45 and his present physical condition that he would be able to help this terrible team. It now appears that the Kings are going to reassign Doug to other duties maybe to go down and help at the American Hockey League Springfield team. He had bred brought in at the time coach Johnny Wilson was hired to coach the Kings defenseman. The Boston Bruins general manager Milt Schmidt He's also looking at young players the way uh, Francis talked about when he was talking to the Leafs about Tim Horton and why he hadn't acquired him. Well, he wants to look at some of his young prospects before the expansion draft this June as well. Uh, To that end, Milt called up a couple of kids from the Oklahoma City Blazers of the Central Hockey League in this week. Goalie John Adams who uh, seems to be a pretty good goalkeeping prospect, and right winger Tom Webster, formerly of the Niagara Falls Flyers Junior A team. He's a fast skating, hard shooting right winger who was a top scorer in junior, and he's hoping to translate that talent to the National Hockey League. Webster in particular, I think, will be uh, a target of the expansion teams if he's not protected. The Bruins have a lot of guys, and it's going to be a numbers crunch for them to see who they're going to freeze from being allowed to be picked by Buffalo and Vancouver. And I can tell you this, if Tom Webster is made available, he could be the first skater chosen in that expansion draft. As for John Adams, several Boston writers have indicated that he is likely going to be the backup goaltender to Jerry Cheevers next season. And Eddie Johnson may be exposed in the expansion draft and he could end up with Buffalo or Vancouver as well. That would give one of those two teams some pretty solid net minding. And as Punch Imlach has said on numerous occasions, He's worried because the quality of goaltending in this draft is not very good. And without good goaltending, he doesn't expect either Vancouver or Buffalo to be very competitive under any circumstances. Now, we talked about this uh, item a few times this season. Uh, Montreal Canadiens captain John Belliveau, a certain Hall of Famer for sure. Uh, He's complained all season of feeling tired, lethargic and just hasn't been able to get himself going. Well, Pat Curran in the Montreal Gazette, he's reporting that the big guy is starting to come around, and in recent days he's uh, starting to act like his former self on and off the ice, and if he's back to normal, then the Canadiens' playoff chances are greatly enhanced. Uh, the main beneficiary of uh, uh, Jean Bellable coming back to life, so to speak, is right-winger Yvan Cornuier. He's Really, been benefiting from Bellevaux's playmaking getting better, and he scored six goals in the HAB's past 10 games as they've managed to try and solidify a hold on third place. We had reported previously that uh, there were disciplinary actions taken against several NHL officials, one of them being referee John D'Amico, who had been demoted from being a referee back to being a linesman. We learned this week that John wasn't demoted, his move back to linesman status was his idea. John is a perfectionist. Anybody who knows John D'Amico would know that. Very conscientious, always wanting to be absolutely the best official he could be. Well, John went to referee in chief Scotty Morrison and requested to be returned to the linesman post simply because he was being so worried before each game that he worked that he didn't sleep the night before a game and it was starting to take a toll on his health. So for his own good, John D'Amico went back to being one of the best National Hockey League linesmen that ever graced an NHL rink's ice. And speaking of referees, well, referee John Ashley is in hot water again, and this time he was disciplined by the NHL for his mistakes. Uh, this comes from a February nineteenth game at Chicago when he somehow misinterpreted the rules governing multiple penalties to multiple players in a game between the North Stars and the Blackhawks in Chicago. Ashley somehow fouled up penalty times and he allowed Chicago's Keith Magnuson to leave the penalty box long before. He was supposed to get back on the ice. Now, this was the second time in three weeks that Ashley had made a similar error in these situations involving multiple penalties to several players. Previously, in in a game just a week or so before that, uh, between Toronto Maple Leafs and Pittsburgh, the Maple Leafs benefited from an incorrect decision by Ashley in their game. Now, interestingly... Uh, if you've been keeping up with us, Ashley has been accused by several Western Division general managers of having a bias and favoring Eastern Division teams in the decisions he makes on the games. Pittsburgh's GM a president now, Jack Riley, complained that Ashley actually had told him that the expansion teams were second class operations and didn't deserve any officiating breaks. Now both of these errors that he made with the penalty times resulted in giving established teams an advantage over western division teams. Scotty Morrison, the referee in chief of the NHL, refused to discuss what disciplinary measures had been taken against John Ashley. Now, here's a story out of Buffalo, and it has to do with the AHL Bisons, not the NHL Sabres, but it kind of gives you an idea of what running minor hockey league teams is like, what playing in minor league hockey teams is like, and what being a trainer in minor hockey league teams is like is like. An argument between Guy Trottier, who was the second leading scorer in the American Hockey League with the Bisons, and trainer Frank Christie resulted in Guy Trottier quitting the Bisons team. Now it all happened when uh, Frank Christie informed coach Fred Sherrill that some of Trottier's sticks had gone missing and he thought, that there would be too few for Guy to to use in the upcoming weekend American Hockey League games. Christie felt that Troche, for some reason, had taken some hockey sticks home with him. While the men got into a rather loud argument, Coach Shiro was right there. He stepped in, told both of them to shut up, or words to that effect. He told Christie to get the required number of twigs for Troche in time for their next game, and he told Trace that if he had, in fact, taken hockey sticks from the rink to his home, he'd be paying for them. This incensed Trace beyond, uh, he couldn't believe wh- what Cheryl was saying, and he accused Cheryl of calling him a liar and a thief. He stormed out of Memorial Auditorium, did talk to a, a uh, hockey reporter, Uh, Charlie Barton, I believe it was, of the Courier Express, he told Charlie that he was vowing never to return to the Buffalo team if Shiro remained as coach. He demanded that he be traded from the Bisons immediately. There was no immediate resolution to this situation, and we'd have to stay tuned to find out just what happened. Now, this next story we talk, told you about this, it's a very poorly kept secret that the Vancouver Canucks were going to name former Philadelphia Flyers general manager Bud Poyle as their new general manager for the National Hockey League franchise. Uh, they confirmed it on Wednesday of this week, but as usual, with the way the Canucks have been doing things, the situation was normal all fouled up. It was a really goofy thing and we've got some background on this that a lot of people probably didn't know or don't remember from the time. An interesting story about Bud Poyle, Tom Scallon, the president of Metacor who owns the Canucks and the Western Hockey League general manager for the Canucks and also their coach Joe Crozier. The announcement of Poyle's appointment was made on Wednesday morning and it was surprising uh, to see Crozier was there just as a press conference was about to begin and then he curtly left the area with a uh, brief statement of see you later fellas. Now Jim Kearney of the Vancouver Sun again i've i 've uh, spoken about how well connected uh Jim is. He had the inside story that later appeared in several uh publications as of Monday of this week. The plan for by vancouver 's ownership was to appoint Bud Poyle as general manager, which is what happened, and to offer the National Hockey League coaching job to Joe crozier. however, that scenario got all messed up when Poyle suggested that the management structure for the Canucks should mimic that of the Philadelphia Flyers. Poyle was suggesting that he would become an assistant to the president of the team and that Joe Crozier would become the general manager coach and Joe would report directly to him. And and actually, the uh, ownership group was not the uh, opposed to such a a solution. Now, Crozier somehow got wind of this plan, and he was vehemently against it. Joe did not want to report under any circumstances to Bud Poyle. I don't think the two liked each other, although Poyle never really came out and said that. It was Joe just wanting to be completely in charge. He didn't want to be reporting to anyone. This, however, was unknown to Poyle or to Tom Scallon, the president of MediCor, and of course, the one of the directors for the team. So what was going to happen was Scallon decided that he wanted to meet Tuesday evening with Joe Crozier the night before the press conference to announce the management positions and explain to him exactly how the management structure was going to work. The plan was to offer Crozier the job's at that time. Crozier flat out refused to meet with Scallon knowing what he was going to be asked to accept and despite the best efforts of Poyle and Scallon to locate Joe he went into hiding and he wouldn't talk to him about the appointments. They continued the next morning right before the 10 o'clock press conference to try and locate Crozier and get everything ironed out. Finally the directors, Scallon, Lyman Walters, vice president of Metacor, Cyrus McLean and Coley Hall, whom we have been with the Canucks for quite a long time. They got together just before the press conference to announce a management team. And they decided if Crozier was going to act like this, he would be fired immediately for rank insubordination. subordination. Now, Joe didn't know this. His plan was to show up at the hotel where the press conference was being held. He was going to walk smiling up to the podium with the rest of the management team, and he was going to allow the management announcement to be made, appointing him as GM coach under Poyle, at which point he would make the dramatic announcement that he was quitting, and then he would walk off the stage. Joe never got the chance. As soon as he showed up, at the press conference, Scallon intercepted him before the press conference began. He took Joe into another side room and curtly informed him that he no longer had a job with the Vancouver Canucks. Crozier come out. All the assembled press people were right there in front of the podium. He walked briefly past the podium. Coley Hall offered to shake his hand. or Sorry, it went the other way around. Joe offered to shake Coley Hall's hand. As he was leaving, Hall refused, saying out loud he wouldn't shake the hand of the man who called him a liar. Now that was a reference to the alleged secret deal that saw the Canucks pay punch him like $25,000 for unspecified duties, ostensibly, without knowledge of the, the Canucks board of directors. Joe walked past Coley Hall, past everyone else, said he had nothing to say other than see you later, fellas, and the matter was now in the hands of his lawyers so now right from the start this new Vancouver team has been a bit of a clown show we can only hope that they don't turn into another California slash Oakland Seals fiasco management may not be any better than the Seals but at least the Canucks should have the support that the uh, Seals never had as far as attendance goes but with management goof ups like this do you think they can ever win a Stanley Cup? Attendance is up everywhere in the NHL this season, except in one city. And I'll bet you can't guess in which city attendance is actually lower than it was last season. Now, figures have been compiled from around the league, and the only NHL team that has sold fewer tickets this season than last year is the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> this is this is mind-blowing, but it's really not what it appears to be. Now, the Leafs are last in the Eastern Division, and they're a terrible team. There's no doubt about that. There's no help on the horizon, so people aren't coming in to look at good kids coming up later. There don't seem to be any good kids coming up to perform later. The Leafs' season ticket uh, base, which is all the seats in Maple Leaf Gardens, are sold out on a season basis. That's right. Every seat in the place is sold out. But there has been a decline in standing room tickets. The Leafs, according to their figures have sold 140 fewer standing room tickets than they did last season. In reality, this is a non-story. But the actual attendance figures showing across the board increases are significant. Number one, the best team so far in these announced attendance figures, the New York Rangers, with just under 500,000 fans through 29 games. Maple Leafs next at 476,000, and then the Blues at 471. We have a bit of a drop off to Boston at 430,000, but remember, Boston Garden is not the largest arena. Up in fifth spot, the Minnesota North Stars with 413,000, and then the Red Wings, 404, nearly 405,000, and that again is in an arena, the Olympia whose seating capacity is not as big as Minnesota or St. Louis. The next four are Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and of course, trailing Pittsburgh and the Oakland Seals. Are we missing a couple teams? Yes, we are. What about Montreal and Chicago? Well, the Hawks and the Habs are both probably ahead of New York and Toronto, but these two clubs refuse to release their attendance figures until the end of the season. So at the moment, there aren't any numbers to report. Still, it's encouraging to see teams like St. Louis and Minnesota right up there with the best, and this bodes well for their future, uh, especially the North Stars. We think they could be in Minnesota forever with that's hockey country. What could go wrong? in a place where attendance is doing so well with a terrible team once again this is the time we usually do our personality of the week but with so much news this week there just isn't room for a, a decent uh, feature with enough detail on on a personality. We will be bringing this uh, feature back. Hopefully when the news settles down a bit uh, and the playoffs start to get going, there'll be less player movement news and things like that. So this week, what did we learn in this week's show? Well, we learned that with the NHL trade deadline approaching, there were a lot of swap rumors going around and a lot of big names being talked about. Uh, We learned that Bud Poyle formally was announced as a Canucks GM and Joe Crozier was unceremoniously sacked and it was probably Joe's own doing. I don't know if Joe made a wise move and not taking the offer that was going to be given to him. Sometimes our egos do get in the way of things, don't they? And we found that Gump Worsley, one of the more popular goaltenders ever to play in the National Hockey League, has found a new home, and we think he'll fit in just great with the Minnesota North Stars and workhorse Caesar Maniego. Now, next week's going to be another busy news week. Uh, And we've got several stories we're working on already. The trade deadline is drawing nearer, and you're going to find a great veteran and future Hall of Famer will be traded for the first time in his career, and we'll have to see how he handles that. We have a lot of coverage on that. Uh, We'll learn that an NHL coach will receive a two-year contract extension, but we wonder if he'll last two years. Uh, his team will think he lasts two years, but some of the stuff this guy has pulled, we're not so sure. We'll learn about an, the NHL Referees Association making a very curious move when they dismiss their Toronto lawyer, Joe Kane, as their counsel. A lot of people be wondering what really happened behind the scenes there, and uh, we'll get some statements from NHL President Clarence Campbell, which will provide some clues. And we have another interesting story that's not hockey, it's baseball, but it affected hockey down the road, and we'll have a report on the status of baseball player Kurt Flood's challenge to his sports reserve clause and his request to immediately be declared a free agent. Uh, Stay tuned for that one. This story continues to evolve, and uh, as we know now, 50 years later, it changed the landscape of professional sports. The 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast is produced each week by Andy Cole. The Rural Alberta Advantage, an indie rock group from Toronto, provides us with our introductory music. And if you ever get to see them live, they have a great show. They just announced a show out in Calgary during the beginning of the Calgary Stampede at the Crazy Horse Saloon. That should be a great show. I wish I could make it out there for that one. Uh, Other musical pieces and sound effects are provided by Andy Cole as well. And our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at... Our sponsor, Newspapers.com. Another worthwhile podcast I highly recommend is the Lex Write A Song podcast, hosted by Andy Cole, who's our producer. Each week, Andy and a special guest have some great conversation. They write an entirely new musical piece, and they perform it at the end of the show, and the results are very entertaining. Uh, The interesting part of all this is not all these guests are musicians, and so it really makes for some uh, unique results. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey 50 years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site at Hockey50YearsAgo.com and of course you can get us on Spotify, the Apple and Google podcast stores and through your favorite podcast app under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. Please join us again next week for another 50-year trip back in time to uh, learn about hockey news that affects us today. Thanks again for tuning into our show, and we will see you next time. When the ice breaks.